0: This podcast was recorded on June 15th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes.
1: Right, everyone welcome to the latest season of the sherman show i'm jeff sherman here is my co-host sam lau hey hey and today we have a very special guest from across the pond he's none other than jim reed jim
2: welcome to the sherman show it's a pleasure to be invited thank you very much
1: yeah thank thanks you. jim and so for those of you who don't know jim reed from deutsche bank he's a managing director he's the global head of fundamental credit strategy and he also heads up deutsche's thematic research product and corporate bank research So if you don't know Jim, what you really should know, he's a top break strategist. He's consistently named the number one analyst in surveys over the last 25 years. He was uh, most recently voted the number one strategist in 4Ks in the European Institutional Investor Poll. He's had 25 number one position in these awards. So I'm going to say he's a pretty good expert in the field of of macroeconomics. So um, not only do you do a good job there, but also implementation and how to implement that from a strategist's point of view.
2: So Jim, cool. welcome to the show. Can we end Can we end the conversation there? That that I, I'm
1: quite happy to leave it like that. That that seemed a good intro. And so everyone, thanks for listening. That's Jim Reed. <laughs> uh, as you heard, he's just a stud. He's a strategist. He's great. So, um, but Jim, uh, I know you you, you put out a, a daily publication now. It's called the Early Morning Reed Report. I think it's very clever too. I like to read it each day, um, especially being here on the west coast of the states. Um, you know, I, it comes about midnight or so. So it's the first thing I read in the morning. And what I noticed uh, in, in looking at it is it said that you had over tens of thousands of daily readers. So um, hopefully one or two of those will start to listen to The Sherman Show and we can get our uh, our viewership up to about 100 or so after that. But um, just, just seeing the, the statistics and everything. So first of all, how do you do it? How do you do it every single day, putting out such great content?
2: Um, well, thank you, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> the honest truth is I, I've you know, I've got a team, but I'm, I'm writing it every day uh, to, to some degree. But I, I have a team that help me pick out the right stories and m- make sure we don't miss anything. Um, it is a little bit antisocial. Um, I go to bed very early and I, I, I do a bit of work from bed in the evening. And I get up very, very early. And uh, actually, something that I haven't told many people, I, I finish it off just before five o'clock in the morning on my Watt bike. Um, so I try to kill two birds with one stone, keeping fit and writing research at the, at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a, a jack of all trades, right? I mean, uh, putting in that, maybe that helps with the, you know, this work remote environment. At least I assume that's not the Deutsche Bank headquarters you're broadcasting from today. So those of you that want to know what I'm talking about, you can see this on YouTube at uh, youtube.com backslash Double Line capital. you can see the video here. But i assume that you're still working remotely there jim uh, given the the background of the guitar and the painting
2: i am yes i haven't actually been back to the office for 14 or 15 months So uh, it's there's, there's there are there are more people going back to the office but I, i'm not yet uh back there but it, i mean it's interesting working from home because given that i've always done a daily that goes out before 6:45 in london time uh for for most of the last 15 so years i've done a large proportion of my work from home because uh, I couldn't physically do it otherwise. So I've, I've, I've always had a, 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 you know, two or three hours a day where I'm working from home. Um, yeah. So this, this is actually not too new for me, although the, the longevity of it probably is. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, you, you were the inventor of the hybrid uh, work model before we all
2: knew about it, right? <laughs> Maybe I was. Yeah, I, I couldn't persuade people at the time it was a good, a good thing. So, um, yeah, I, people, uh, people didn't think it was a, a particularly productive way of uh, working, but I think they're, they're learning that it does have a, a place.
1: All right, so, so let's get into some of your research, though, too. Uh, you, you guys have been very vocal about the inflation debate. And I think what's what's very interesting is the research you guys are putting out is that, you know, you're putting out both sides of the equation, the transitory view, the permanent view or the, the higher level over time. So, first of all, let's just start with it. What is driving
2: inflation today and how are you thinking about it from your seat? Yeah, well, let me let me take a step back. A, a, a Deutsche, I've been at Deutsche Research now nearly 17 years and I've never seen an issue that's divided us as much as um, as, as inflation, that the, the economists mostly believe that it's a transitory uh, feature. And I think it's probably because they're, they're, they're looking at the bottoms up numbers in minute detail. <clears throat> and when they look at the bottoms up numbers, it's quite clear that uh, a lot of the areas that to do with the pandemic are seeing quite big price rises. And there there is only a little bit of evidence it's it's uh, seeping through into other areas. So as, as an economist, I can easily see how the bottoms up. Uh, tells you that this is transitory. Um, There is also a few of us at Deutsche Bank who think that there's a structural change going on. Um, and that is a, is a little bit more difficult to model. It's a little bit more to, difficult to get out of a spreadsheet, but, you know, believe that there's a structural change going on. Uh, you know, this this now is the most coordinated monetary and fiscal policy has been in history, really, and it dwarfs anything seen in the financial crisis. It dwarfs anything seen in uh, the d- Depression, and I think the economic orthodoxy is uh, changing. If you, if you humor me let, me, let me go back 40 years, Uh, If I go back 40 years, um, Volcker was uh, appointed at the Fed at the end of 1979 as an inflation hawk. The the U.S. wanted to get inflation down Uh, very soon after uh, Reagan was elected. And Reagan had a a popular mandate to reduce the size of government. Uh, Now, whether he succeeded all the way through is a mute point. But his mandate was to reduce the size of government. That was an ideology that, that. that there was behind that. If you fast forward 40 years, look at where we are today. The, the Fed has come off Jackson Hole last year with a kind of a mandate to let inflation run a bit hot and to actually not lean against economic uh, uh, overheating, but to allow it to get to a point where they're happy with, with uh, where the economy is. So they're not going to f- uh, go on forecast gains. They're going to go on actual uh, gains. And at the same time, Biden was elected. Uh, almost to put government right at the heart of the economy. And and since he's been elected, he's put government bang center at the the heart of the economy. So I like that contrast between uh, the reagan uh, volcker axis and the kind of uh, Biden-Powell axis. And one last thing I'll say is that even on a shorter term basis, the economic orthodoxy, I think, is changing. In the sense, if you go back to the financial crisis a decade ago, We we very quickly ran into the Greek sovereign crisis, the peripheral crisis, Uh, and Reinhardt and Rogoff did their seminal work on levels of debt, which are uh, massively problematic. And at the time, everybody was panicking about sovereign default risk, and therefore governments uh, were uh, desperate to consolidate the fiscal balance sheets and go towards austerity and you know i think that that kind of economic orthodoxy that, that was the, around after the financial crisis was showing some cracks before the pandemic but it wasn't until the pandemic came and we've now got debt levels far far above where they were after the financial crisis that i think we 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 now have an economic orthodoxy that is quite tolerant towards both high government spending and money printing so i, I this is why i think the kind of in the background, economic orthodoxy is changing, and that's probably why economists aren't that quick to jump on it because they're much more model-based, and I'm not sure you can necessarily see this yet in the models. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And so when you think about this or-
1: orthodoxy, and I-, I think back to the global financial crisis that you mentioned, how QE was a temporary or an extraordinary measure uh, to take place, and-, and we know there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program, right? That's the old joke. But if you think about it too, uh, a lot of folks think that the orthodoxy hasn't changed to more fiscal stimulus, it is also transitory and potentially that's what is, is leading people to think about this transitory inflation. And I like that you brought out of the Reinhard and Rogoff piece as well, where I think it was like, 90, it was like 70% starts to cripple at, at the GDP ratio, like 90%, you're just massively yeah. out of luck for the rest of your life until you default. And here we are with hundreds of percents and, and growing. So when you talk about the orthodoxy, do you think this is a new orthodoxy for this fiscal side and just understanding that, look, we have these unlimited uh, spending powers as long as we can print in currencies uh, that are out there. How are you thinking about that as, as, uh, as it relates to both inflation and as well as just overall global growth?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think as a society, uh, we are less inclined to want to take risk, uh, economic risk. Um, and I wonder whether one of the legacies of the uh, pandemic is that if we if we ever do have a recession again, how quickly it will be to people to say we should be doing furlough schemes rather than just basic unemployment benefit. Um, and I, I, I think we've kind of institutionalized high spending. Um and you know, put the populism of the last decade as, as well was a bit of a rebellion against uh, you know governments being relatively fiscal to, fiscally uh, tight. And I think governments now realise that, that they, you know they they are going to struggle to get re-elected unless they're offering uh, a spending really to their to their population. So I I think that the higher fiscal spending is getting more and more institutionalised. And I think. ESG will probably institutionalize it further. And we can chat about that probably uh, at some point as well. So my answer is yes, I think it is a little bit more permanent. I suppose the, the, there are risks like the, the midterms in the U.S. is a risk. Um, and But I mean, I, I think a lot of spending is going to be in the system in the next 18 months before we even get there. But it's probably a longer term risk. All I would say to that is that even under CBO projections of where the deficit was before the Biden uh tax uh stimulus package earlier this year deficits were already going to be four five six percent for the rest of our lives as a minimum so it doesn't feel like we're ever going to go to austerity it's just how much the 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 trough is in fiscal spending
1: yeah the austerity is the the derivative of the rate of change of that deficit right but it is a structural deficit so you mentioned something interesting there too about managing um I'll, i'll summarize as economic volatility right so have we now went to the world where we will not tolerate the boom-bust cycles? And I, I know you guys have written a piece about the boom-bust cycles. And, you know, w- will it transition back to that by having more inflation, having to be fiscal hawks, or I'm sorry, monetary hawks and and raising interest rates? But as you think about it,
2: um, has something changed there structurally as well? Yeah, well, I, I've done some work looking at the length of economic cycles in the U.S. And, um, since uh, the data was collected i think I, I, well since the, the economic cycles have been monitored in, in the us i think it's 170 years there's been 34 uh cycles i think um of the 11 longest cycles nine have occurred in the last uh 50 60 years when deficit financing has been a thing if that makes sense so yep. before the last 50 60 years the only time government in the US ever had a deficit was during the war or the depression or where you broke, broke from the gold standard effectively. So virtually all the time you you ran uh, a balanced budget pretty, pretty much. Um, But then once we got into the kind of spending pressures of the late sixties, and then we moved, uh, abandoned the gold uh, link system in 71 and moved to a fiat currency, we, we basically had deficit financing as an option. And at the start of that period, debt was pretty low. Um, But the way we've elongated economic cycles and avoided kind of um, boom bust or whatever is every time the economy looks a bit tired, we just, you know, we spend a little bit more money. And structurally, we're spending more money in the economy, which has made cycles longer, made us feel better. But at the end of it, it's left us with uh, more debt than we've ever had in peacetime. So. Boom bust has kind of been eliminated but at the expense of runaway levels of uh, of, of, of debt
1: okay so does the debt matter I mean this is a uh, this is one thing that you you harken back to Reagan yeah. and it was deficits don't matter I think uh, I like to bring out that uh, at the time it was George HW Bush that was running against him said voodoo economics right this idea that we can we can borrow our way to prosperity so does the debt matter? Reinhardt and Rogoff says it did. Um, people think of it as a household balance sheet. It does. Right. But when you're a, a government and a, and, and a sovereign entity, does it matter as much? And what what does the market
2: think about it? Well, I think, it. I mean, obviously, if you adjust uh, debt, uh, taking out what central banks hold, um, debt levels are high, but they're not extraordinarily high so i suppose the question should be does it matter if central banks hold uh, an enormous amount of your uh, of your debt and ultimately it might come down to uh inflation and what the free market holders of debt do at that point um, I, I would say it matters less if, you, if you've got a system that is heavily financially repressed. So you're forcing banks to own stuff against their will, other other long-term institutions to hold it against their will. And you've got a central bank that has a, a, a bottomless pit. The honest truth is we've never been in debt levels like this in a fiat money system where banks can, uh, central banks can create as much money as, as they can. So none of us kind of know does debt matter. If we weren't in a fiat currency regime, Debt 100% matters. Uh, there is no escaping it. In, in a fiat currency regime where you can print money, we don't know is the answer.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, that's why we, we like you, Jim. It's your honesty and, and fresh takes on things. Not not saying that.
2: I suspect I mean. it does matter, but okay. it could be a little bit further down the road than, than we expect. And maybe inflation will come to erode the value of the debt while we think about the answer.
1: Right. And, and potentially it's, it comes down to servicing. Right. But I think you brought up a good point here talking about central banks um, owning a lot of the debt. And we see this with the the Fed now um, leading the charge here with a seven trillion dollar uh, balance sheet. Uh, I think We just hit that milestone. So uh, kudos out there. Um, but the thing is, is that. You know, when you think about the float of treasuries, as you mentioned, it's reducing it. And we've seen pressures on funding spreads, you know, at the very front end of the curve. You've seen banks, you know, really struggling with money market funds and alike and hence using reverse repo and, and the facility or the repo facilities at at the Fed. But outside of all that wonky stuff and, and really thinking about the details there, I mean, what happens with the Fed? Can they actually get out of this? Uh, we saw this in, in 2018 with with Jerome Powell's uh, Automatic pilot and the thing so is is the Fed. Let's just focus on them as one of the central banks. Are they stuck uh, forever holding this significant balance sheet uh, because we saw last time
2: with the unwinds. It did become a little bit problematic. Look, I've, I've had a long standing view that central banks will be buying government bonds for the rest of my career. Uh, And unfortunately, I've got a a, a decent sized mortgage and I've got school. uh, I've got children that are just starting school. So I've got a long time to uh, try to earn money to uh, rescue myself. So I I, I think throughout that period, um, central banks could be buying uh, government bonds, because if you look at any projection for uh, any country in the US is is no different. Um, Debt goes up over time because of demographics, because of uh, current. Uh, assume tax law, etc., um, and therefore I can't understand this. I can't contemplate a scenario where the free market is going to be able to uh, absorb that extra debt on its own without massive help in hand from someone. And that the, the biggest part of that is central banks, uh, alongside, as I say, financial. Uh, repression. So, yes, you're, I mean, the Fed will some point taper from this current program because the economy does have some critical mass. Um, but, you know, it might not be very long before they have to buy again, a bit like what we saw in the last decade. Every, you know, every time we ended QE, the Fed was convinced that was, you know, that was it or was, was pretty much on the way to being it. And you know, we've we've had uh, I, I lose count how many iterations now. Are we four or five iterations of, of what we're doing? Maybe, maybe maybe a bit more if you break down some of the subcomponents. So yeah, I think I think it's with us for the rest of our uh, career, really.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, as you, as you think about it, um, and really digging into the details too, like how, how do you get other people to buy treasuries? You know, when you see the inflation headline prints where they are. Uh, you look at break even spreads; uh, they're implying that there's there's a pretty significant negative real yield, so a return after inflation. There, I mean, do we just need to you know do what Japan did, uh, like in the '80s, and go with a new marketing campaign? Uh, maybe it's a little too sexist this time, but it's like real men buy JGBs, right? There was that that old uh, that old saying out there. But um, you know, how how do we we change that? And and I think that you know really I, it comes down to the idea if we're going to have this inflation level why would investors want to accept de- eroding their purchasing power so that leads me to my question here
2: why does the fed want inflation um well i don't think the fed necessarily does want inflation i think it wants and well it wants this uh, kind of happy uh medium between having enough inflation that it just encourages that kind of animal spirits that maybe has been uh missing and, and makes people you know makes uh, companies want to do capex or makes uh, investors want to uh invest in the real economy uh but not enough that it needs to uh tighten policy and it's a very narrow tightrope that they're walking so i don't think they particularly do want inflation um but they, they they want to make sure the economy is going uh, gangbusters, and I think they feel that because it's transitory, they can let the economy go bang, gangbusters without any inflationary consequence. So they're, they're hoping that they're getting the best of both worlds, really.
3: Yeah, that's uh, you know, Jim, that's an interesting point. One of the things I've been thinking about also, and just to try to shift away from fiscal and monetary policy over to, you know, perhaps the consumer side. But one of the big questions I think in this in this uh in this period right now is that we're trying to figure out who has ultimately the pricing power. Is it sit and reside within the producers or is it ultimately going to get passed on to the price, is going to, price inflation going to get p- passed on to the consumer side of things? And overall, I, I suppose, you know, what we've been seeing in the data is that in price input prices have been on the rise. Um, we're seeing this anywhere from the PPI numbers through some of the the manufacturing survey numbers, but uh, at some point it seems like uh, there would be a tipping point as to how much the producers can absorb. Uh, At what point do you think this is going to shift over, or if it does, over to the consumer side of things?
2: Yeah, well, um, I mean, clearly you have seen that passed on I mean, I suppose where it's been passed on most is construction costs uh, around the world are are going up. I I appreciate that doesn't cover a wide range of the population, but food prices are going up uh, everywhere. Obviously, petrol prices are are, are going up. I think other uh, kind of non-essential goods are perhaps, you know, uh, the companies are, you know, having to absorb some of that in their margins but maybe the, the acid test is does this go into wages i think it, as, as soon as there's evidence strong evidence that it goes into wages then it is a bit of a free-for-all in terms of price rises uh because the key the consumer has a bit more pricing power to uh to to, to uh to be able to buy higher uh prices etc and you know, that that's something that you know we're looking at i think the anecdotal evidence is that there are price, uh, wage pressures uh, but again, are they transitory? Are they just in the short term while we adjust to the uh, uh, obvious supply problems of the pandemic, or are they going to be a bit more permanent? I I side on they will be a bit more permanent. Uh, once you know wages are sticky, once they go up, it's very difficult to cut them. And you know the politics as well. Uh, the, the politics has moved on quite a lot in the last few years towards uh, ESG, towards minimum wages, towards a fair you know living wage, and that I think does reinforce the, the message a little bit. So I think there will be a bit of uh, wage pressures uh, coming coming through, and that, that will allow uh, prices to kind of be a bit more self-reinforcing. Yeah. So,
1: Jim, is it, is it wage pressure from, you know, the competitive free market, or is it
2: wage pressure from essentially government subsidies? I think a bit of everything. I mean, there's, it's quite clear at the moment the labor market is quite um, – bipolar in, in, in some sense, in the sense that the payrolls are obviously showing uh, that there's seven or eight million U.S. jobs to, to get back before you get to pre-COVID levels. But the jolts data uh, is, is very strong. The quits rate uh, is very strong in the U.S., which you know people don't quit their jobs unless they're pretty confident about the, the labor market. So um, I, I think there's already a sign that the labor market is pretty competitive. And part of the reason is because uh, unemployment benefits have uh, reduced the incentive to uh, to find work. Obviously, Covid is also causing a problem as well. And therefore, companies are having to um, lift wages to, to persuade people to get back into uh work. And as I say it's not something that you can pay someone up for three months and then cut their wages once you you know once you pay someone up uh, for, for the job, that is their, their, their kind of contractual uh, pay. So the, I suppose the longer this period goes on and ironically maybe the longer the COVID disruption lasts, the more this inflation might might be embedded really
3: yeah and i do agree with that with the the statement that the wages are sticky and one of the things that you know we think about too is you know when we think about price increases especially right now where it's most needed at probably the lower end wages um if someone on the on the lower wage scale gets paid you know a little bit higher based on a rage that needs to trickle up as well you know because people who are you know immediately above them in pay might want to raise as well but one interesting fact is that I just drove? I just spent the weekend and drove from Los Angeles, California, out here to Madison, Wisconsin, to visit my mother. And I drove through much of America's heartland. And I recall just standing there waiting for my 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 pickup truck to get filled up with gas as I was, you know, you know, put it, you know, I just set it and forget it. And i was sitting there taking a look around, and there is a uh, a Wendy's, you know, just next door to the gas station I was at. And I saw now hiring. And this is in Missouri, the state of Missouri, which I think just took off or it's about to sunset its, uh, its uh, extended unemployment benefits from the you know, courtesy of the federal government. But the Wendy's was looking to hire people at what I thought might be an elevated you know, uh, wage at around 13 bucks an hour uh, at, the, at the local Wendy's. And then I looked over at the, at the gas station I was at and they also had their sign up trying to compete and their sign on the, the billboard said, they're looking for $15 an hour for, for this gas station. So, you know, definitely seeing some signs there. Um, and whether or not uh, it's, it's going to make its way across is remains to be seen. But I do have uh, a suspicion that it, it probably will. Um, but one thing I did want to, you know, aside from that, no, one thing I did want to touch on, and you mentioned it, is ESG and perhaps some of the inflationary pressures that we might see out of that. And then you know, just looking around that uh, you know, on the in commodity market, one thing that we've been talking about is carbon neutrality and the goals uh, across various economies for that. And I saw that around nine out of 10 of the, the largest economies here in the world have all signed on to this carbon neutrality agreement uh, by 2050, the year 2050. So all of that's gonna require some additional fiscal uh, spending as well to get various infrastructure grids up to speed to, in order to handle that. But what are your thoughts around, you know, just overall the, the ESG uh, sentiment and how that could stoke some inflationary pressures as well uh, over the long term?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's amazing to to think how quickly this debate has, uh, has, has moved really because, I mean, we, we've uh, in my team, in the thematic team, we've been kind of doing ESG research uh for, for, for a few years now but it's been a struggle to really capture the imagination of of, of people so that the graph was was growing up but it wasn't mainstream so the, the rate of change in the sg progress was was high but it, it wasn't getting critical mass but something has happened in the pandemic to really push it uh front and center whether it's just people want to reset rebuild um in a different way is 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 unclear but uh, it's definitely it's definitely got a momentum now that is a steamroller really and you know biden's election probably uh put uh removed one obstacle uh obviously the trump administration was uh was not sympathetic to the esg movement and uh, obviously uh the biden administration is sympathetic so now you've got the us that is 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 catching up with perhaps where europe uh, Wasn't and fairly rapidly. So, um, and look, look at the oil industry uh, between 2000, let's say 2010 and 2015, the uh, shale industry was gangbusters, really, uh, and um, you know it got to a point where I think in 2013, 2014, OPEC just had to respond by flooding the market with its own oil um, and trying to, you know, trying to get back uh, some market share and. The oil price just collapsed. And actually, linking that back to the inflation debate, we think one of the main reasons bond yields and inflation expectations were so low in the latter half of the last decade was because of this price war um, and because of shale. Um, And if you look at inflation expectations versus the price of oil, uh, it is very well correlated. And I think what we're doing now is we've repriced the kind of uh, uh, you know for want of a better technical phrase we've repriced the, the the kind of cost of mining uh oil you know shale energy is is a bit persona non gratis now i mean obviously biden is is reinforcing that uh it is going to be more expensive to get energy out of the ground um and then alongside that you've got the massive movement towards electric vehicles i mean if you go back to before the just before the pandemic electric vehicles were a nice thing to have and a you know tesla was a trendy uh, company but it, it i don't really think it has critical mass now every car company around the world is 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 desperate to tell their stakeholders about their funky uh product offering that's going to roll out very very soon and you know th- there's going to be a whole host of pressure on on all of the commodities that go into producing an electric car that, that are slightly different from a normal car. And I, you know, I think that is a, a an element to this ESG story as well, uh, as is the pricing of the externalities of growth. So for me, it points to uh, a higher cost of doing business uh, everywhere, really. And I haven't really thought, thought through all the ramifications of this, but I think as a minimum, uh, we having we're having to price energy use, uh, a lot more, uh, a lot, uh, a lot more sympathetically to the environment than we did even two years ago.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting you bring that part up too, because I, I want to talk about now putting on your hat as a strategist and thinking about this. So so far, the ideas you're throwing out are talking about higher input costs, higher labor costs, um, this you know, the need for these certain commodities to kind of change the infrastructure because. Again, if we're all going to have electric cars, we need to to build that across the superhighways we have here in the U.S. And not the information superhighway, but the interstate system. And so um, when you think about all this, what is one to do when trying to position a portfolio for this is that, you know, there's a lot of uh, assumptions about correlations and different regimes. And so if there is this push on a, a structurally higher inflation number and I'm not going to call it stagflation at this stage. I'll let you you give us your opinion there. But how does one think about position is do bonds work in a portfolio still? How do you think about that for your equity risk? Uh, Do we need to be doing alternatives? How are you thinking about building portfolios to kind of capture this change and this structural viewpoint you have?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing I would say is that the authorities are still very, very reluctant to see a proper free market capitalist default cycle um, every point in the last 25 years when we've looked like we're on the precipice uh, the authorities have increasingly intervened and it's got to a point now where if they didn't we've uh, we've got so much uh, systemically important debt that it would be counterproductive so I, I have a kind of a, a prior in my kind of investment analysis that I'm happy to take default risk in aggregate uh i think i think you're generally overpaid for uh for default risk so you know you can buy kind of a liquid credit you know obviously you have to be diversified but i think you're getting paid to take uh default risk because the authorities are on your side so rather than buying uh low yielding government bonds i i I would be happier buying kind of more liquid credit positions and uh trying to hedge the interest rate risk out which i don't like um equities look a lot depends on real yields i think for for equities if uh, and maybe a lot depends on real yields for everything if if we lose control of real yields given how the high debt is it's game over for a lot of assets but i I suspect as i said i I, with the fed buying for the rest of my career, i think real yields will stay pretty negative uh and that probably means that equities are not going to be as negatively hit as they were in the 1970s with inflation, when real yields were very, very high. Um, I still think it will be a bit of an uphill struggle for, for equities in an inflationary world. But the fact that earnings are, are going to go up because of inflation means that, you know, it'd be a bit of a push-pull. Uh, inflation will cause multiples to go down a bit, but then earnings will come up and uh, you, you get that. You probably will get a sector rotation. So, uh, you know, personally, I, I think tech, is, is is overvalued if you think inflation is coming um, and you know some of the cyclical sectors are perhaps uh, 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 well, some of the smaller growth uh, sorry some of the smaller value stocks and maybe cyclical sectors are probably going to have a bit more of a, a following wind to, to, to help them Um, I suppose commodities, look, when I do my long term analysis on commodity returns, they're not a very good inflation hedge. They they tend to underperform over the long run. But I think in in pockets of inflation, they're absolutely a part of your portfolio. Um, So I I think we're in a a short period of time where commodities are a a pretty attractive asset class, really.
1: Yeah, what we found is that it, it has a pretty poor correlation to inflation just because of the noisiness of commodity prices, one but it's that unexpected inflation, right? It's when the regime yeah. shift and those change, that, that tends to be, and that's that's what we've seen over the last, really now it's been about 12 months, right? That yeah. shift in expectations has changed and, and they have been pretty good. So that, that continues to be a theme that, that we favor as well. I also like the rotation concept, but you know, I like the idea of hedging out some of the uh, the interest rate risk. You know, one thing we do is we just focus on shorter duration assets. There's, there's other parts of the market you can do that without getting too complex there. But, you know, when you think about the Fed and, and its intervention, you know, uh, we have a big meeting that starts today, um, you know, at, at the Ecclese building. I'm probably not saying that right. Uh, but you know, um, what is the Fed? What is your expectations for the Fed and their announcement tomorrow? There's a there's a lot of people thinking about tapering and you know uh, the Fed kind of removing a little bit of support. I, I hear a, a, what I think is a, a pretty uh, a weak argument is that they should stop buying mortgages because look at the housing market. I, I don't really think that you know them buying mortgages. That they need to buy interest rate sensitive assets to keep interest rates down. I don't think it's really mortgages, but. Um, again, I'm leading the witness here, so let me shut up and ask you: What do you think the Fe- what's in the Fed's cards? What do you think taper looks like? When does it happen? Is it announced tomorrow, later on? What's your view?
2: Um, it's probably going to be. I, I I'd like to um, give your readers a really interesting soundbite here, but I suspect it will be a relatively dull. Well, by uh, the way,
1: Jim, this is going to come out after the Fed meeting, so you're going to be in the hot seat. Oh, uh, oh dear. <laughs> um,
2: right. Well. Um, I, I, well, I think the Fed will probably be relatively dull and give us a few little signals, a signpost to what they will look to uh, meet as their criteria for, uh, for, for doing tapering. I mean, there's, although I'm an inflationist, uh, you could look at the inflation numbers that we've seen so far, which, to be fair, were well above any of the non-inflationist forecasts. But you could look at it and say, yes, but it is transitory still. So there's enough in the data that if I was inclined to want to, be uh dovish i could be and the fed are uh you know have made it quite clear in the last couple of months that they, they 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 are leaning on the dovish side so there's enough in it for them to to give it another meeting before they have to uh be be too hawkish so i think tomorrow is a kind of a or well, yesterday when this comes out <laughs> um is another step in the kind of uh um you know thinking about thinking about thinking about uh, so they will give us some signposts but nothing too concrete i suppose for us we're looking at the, uh, the the dots that's a minor thing for the market you know will the medium dot for 2023 now show a rate hike i think we need two fed governors to move uh from seven to nine to make that a medium it it, it will give the market a little bit of excitement but it's probably not the biggest thing in the world from a structural standpoint
1: Right. And on on that point, too, I mean, I've I've been kind of in the camp for the last few months that they probably wait till Jackson Hole as the place where they really start to really tweak the policy. Because if you think about it, that's when they announced, you know, their 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 new inflation targeting. It seems to be just one of those symposiums where they want to make it relevant. And that that's just an extra kind of Fed meeting that we get where it's more policy driven and you get in the inner working. So, um, you know, even if the Fed does announce some sort of tapering, I think. The key here is signaling, right? That, that's that's the difference. We don't want to have another tantrum. It's, it's that forward guidance. And so um, I, I guess the, the question becomes is that, is, is the Fed almighty too? I mean, is it just that they can control interest rates? Uh, we, we've seen the largest inflation prints that some people have seen in their careers, you know, going back, you know, 20 years in some instances. Um, but, you know, when you look at it, the bond market rallied. Um, so is this a short covering? Is it the technical side of it? Do you think that there were some issues there? Or do you think the bond market truly feels that this is transitory? We have the structural deflation or is it just, you know, kind of technical positioning for the time being?
2: Um I think in terms of the bond market, it's is probably a little bit of everything. I mean, we've, we've tried to spend a bit of time over the last few t- days working out what the, the reason for the bond market rally is. I mean, I, I think a poor excuse for it is the weaker uh, non-farm payrolls, but it is an excuse. Um, so, the, the, well, I mean, to be fair, the Fed have targeted that to some degree. So it's understandable if the market uh, follows them. But other measures of the labour force are v- very strong. So I think that's probably... A little bit of a weak excuse um we can't forget international things i mean a, a month or two ago when uh treasuries were around about their peak for the year um we, we were wondering whether the ecb would taper in uh june and i think as may developed it became quite obvious that they weren't ready to do that yet and that that probably injected you know a, a number of basis points of the rally uh being a global uh force um china i mean the credit impulse in china has rolled over a little bit and people have looked at uh, hard metals that have rolled over a little bit again i would say there's no evidence of that in, in the oil price but china and in industrial metals kind of peaked out at the same time as treasuries um obviously the infrastructure package has not re- really uh, progressed too much uh, and that maybe has kind of uh, dampened some of the uh, overspending uh fears um, and also, there, there is a technical reason, um, The and we, we perhaps could have been a bit better in understanding this beforehand, but uh, the, the Treasury have a, a balance at the Fed, uh, and it looks like from the data that the Treasury overissued last year. So coming into this year, the Treasury had a big balance at the Fed, bigger than they've ever had before. Uh, actually, it's gone up probably a, a one and a half trillion um Uh, in the preceding nine months. And when the Biden uh, fiscal package came through, instead of issuing lots of bonds, they ran down that uh, balance. And when you run down that balance, effectively what you're doing is putting uh, deposits into the banking system uh, because it can't all be spent. And I think the banks have been left with this excess liquidity that then they've rotated into treasuries. Um, Now, that seems to have normalized uh, to some degree. So I don't think that's going to be as big a force uh, going forward. But I think undoubtedly banks have bought a hell of a lot of bonds in the last three months. And I can't help thinking one of the reasons is that the the Fed chose to run down its balance rather than issue new bills.
1: Yeah, our our agency mortgage guys have been really, really talking about that, too. The bank bid has just been insatiable there. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, Jim, uh, appreciate your time on all this. And we've kind of corralled you uh, to, to just fiscal and monetary policy and, and the side effects of that largely inflation, but just wanted to see before we let you go, if there's any other, uh, things that are top of mind outside of that scope, uh, you know, perhaps a distant second to, to inflation and, and some of the stuff that we've talked about that our listeners should be, should be focusing on.
2: Well, I think at some point we've, we've probably got to work out what the steady state of the world is in terms of growth and productivity. And, um, I, I, I suppose, um, we, we went into the pandemic with a lot of problems um, and have you know will we be able to cure those problems are we resetting things in a way or will we just go back to uh, kind of the problems we had uh, before uh, the, the, the pandemic so that, that's that's kind of front of mind. I don't think we're quite there. I think we still got a, a few quarters of pretty strong growth. But it'd be interesting to see at what price, what time uh, people start to price some of the structural problems of low productivity, um, you know, high debt. Uh, Well, obviously, people don't care about that at the moment. But, you know, these are all topics we were talking about before the the pandemic. Um, Look, maybe uh, an investment boom because of ESG or infrastructure has the ability to start to change some of this. Um, But if, if, um, you know, if infrastructure goes by the wayside globally, then maybe we've just had a massive consumption and reopening boom and we'll go back to low productivity, low growth, uh, possibly with higher inflation. Um, But we'll see. So I suppose that that long where we are long term, what our steady state is, is it is certainly a a fascinating topic uh, for me. I mean, other things that I think are fascinating is geopolitics. I mean, if you go back. I'm going to say three, three and a half, four years now. Um, most governments around the world were still caught in the relationship with China, um, perhaps more so in Europe than, than, than in the U.S. But um, obviously, uh, the previous president um, decided to uh, make that U.S.-China relationship, uh, you know, a much more contested uh, uh, thing. And, you know, within three years, really, uh, a lot of the developed world are. Uh, at some degree of loggerheads with China uh, on, on certain measures. So, you know, if I fast forward three years, where is that relationship going to be? You know, is it going to go back to normal or is it going to deteriorate at the same race, uh, rate it's done in the last three years? If it deteriorates at the same rate as it's done in the last three years, that has, a, you know, it has massive implications for, for, the, for the kind of setup of the global economy that we've known through our career where China has been an all in, uh, you know, in integrating more and more and more. So that that is probably a big, you know, naught to three year thing on, on, on my mind uh, uh, as well.
1: Yeah, I think what you really highlight there, too, is just the challenges with the current environment. And I think this is uh, well, I know from my own experience, this is what makes the investing business fun. Uh, it's the problem solving and it's getting great minds together to have intellectual debates and you know, as you said, with the Fed, we, we can take the data and splice it how we like, but ultimately, you know, the data is going to tell the story. So, Jim, we thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's great to see you again. Thanks for taking the time out. But, you know, one thing that we need to do is make sure that our listeners can have a way to access you. So what's the best way to, to get access to the work you put out and follow Jim Reed's current thoughts?
2: Have. Well, you can, you can email me uh, uh, my uh, Deutsche Bank uh, address. Uh, if, uh, if, if you are a, a, a client of Deutsche Bank, I can easily add you. Otherwise, it might be more difficult. Um, but, but you can see me on Twitter as well. I occasionally post public stuff. So I'm, I am on uh, Twitter as well. At uh, Jim Reed 35 uh, is my uh, Twitter handle.
1: Okay, uh, 35. We'll get into that a little bit later. So, Jim, thanks again for the time. But before you leave... Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam?
3: Yeah, Jim, that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. That's where I'll offer a a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff Sherman to elicit top-of-mind responses. So I'll begin with the first prompt to Jeff Sherman, and that's transitory.
1: Temporal. That is, well, time will show us.
3: (laughs) Over to you, Jim, with working age population. Shrinking. Accumulated savings. Pent up. Inflation protection.
1: Expensive.
3: All-time high. More to come. Mm. U.S. hegemony.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Glad to give that one to you. (laughs) No comment.
3: <laughs> Fed independence.
2: Um,
1: waning.
3: Return to office. Hybrid. San Francisco Giants, two thousand twenty-one.
1: Best team in baseball. Check the school, check the standings. Mm. Mm.
3: All right, and then the last one to close us out here, Jim. It's going to be a statement first by me, and then a, a followed by the question. So. Happy belated birthday, first of all. And then the follow up there is, what did you get for your birthday?
2: Well, there if is a question. You if you could say it. <laughs> there is a question. Um, my my wife is usually pretty good about buying me presents and it became quite clear in the run up to um, my birthday that she hadn't uh, done anything. And I just wanted to preempt any boring, rubbish, pointless present. I said, I've got an idea. I I'm obsessed with golf. I'm probably the most obsessed person you could ever meet about golf. I said, why don't I go into my local pro shop, spend a, a large amount of money and split all the presents I buy between you and the three kids I've got. And we, we came to an agreement. I did that. I was deliriously happy. Uh, the kids had something to wrap and it's a model for all my future birthdays, I think from now on. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're going to get the, the stimulus in a gift form, you might as well ask for the one you want, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, I so, was
2: very, very happy. If this happened every time, I, I, I wouldn't be uh, too upset.
1: All right. Well, uh, let's let's, uh, let's wish you well for next year. We'll have to get the twenty twenty two update. Uh, we'll bring you back on the show to to find out how that's working, as well as uh, some of our discussion points today. So again, Jim Reed from Deutsche Bank. Um, you know, again, number one type, uh, number one strategist out there. Uh, very, very great research. So if you're a Deutsche Bank client, uh, make sure you reach out to him. If you're not, maybe you should become one as well so you can get access to the great minds like Jim at at DB. So thanks again uh, to Jim. Uh, For those of you that want to catch this on a podcast format, uh, we have the iTunes, the SoundCloud, the Google Play. Uh, You can follow us on the Twitter. Uh, Our handle is at ShermanShowPod. We also have another podcast that Sam Lau co-hosts. Um, he's got a lot of time. Uh, he's a busy man these days uh, with Jeff Mayberry, where they do Monday Morning Minutes. That's a weekly podcast where they cover everything macro and markets. Um, so check that out. Uh, what's the handle on that one, Sam?
3: For the Twitter, it's D- or at D-Line Minutes. I got I to gotta, I gotta start learning how to, how to use this Twitter stuff. So I think it's at D-Line Minutes is the, the proper way to say it.
1: So what's funny about that is Sam's admitting that he doesn't post the stuff on Twitter right now. We have someone that does that. So anyway, it's great content. We're getting a lot more followers there. I encourage everyone to listen to that for uh, the opening bell on Monday morning every, every uh, week. So Jim, once again, thank you to all the time you spent. Uh, thanks for commuting with us today. We appreciate it from all the way across the pond and look forward to our next discussion. Uh, stay tuned for uh, more Sherman shows coming soon as we start the new season. We got plenty of guests coming. Uh, there are the quality of Jim reading the likes. So thanks again, Jim.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, have a good day everyone. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 line Capital